This is the O'Reilly Hardware Podcast. I'm John Bruner. And I'm David Craner. It's never been easier to go from idea to digital design to physical product. The new hardware movement is radically changing the way that technology in the world around us is being conceived, built, and connected. This podcast brings you the new generation of hardware creators who work across the boundary between digital and physical. They're designers, engineers, scientists, artists, and business people. For more information on the new hardware movement and the resources you need to become a full-stack hardware creator, visit O'Reilly.com slash hardware. And if you'd like to send in a question for us to discuss on the show, email us at hardware at O'Reilly.com. All right, so we are here with Manu Prakash today of the Prakash Lab at Stanford. Um, it says on your website that, that you are a curiosity-driven research group working in the field of engineering and physical biology. Manu and I know each other from grad school. He was finishing up at the time that I was first starting at MIT, but uh, he was in Neil Gershenfeld's group. Um, I had to go to your website to figure out exactly like what a concise description of what you do is because there's just so many things, so many projects that I've seen that you've worked on. It's awesome, like the bubble logic stuff and the fold scope stuff and the microfluidics things. And um, yeah, we're just, we're very excited to have someone from like hardcore creative academia and engineering and all that stuff here today. So well, welcome, Manu. Yeah, thank you for having me. So what is a curiosity-driven lab? A uh, curiosity-driven lab is uh, we are driven... Uh, not by what we know, but what we don't know. So we decide projects on not the skill sets that we already have, but what would we like to exist. And it's very driven by questions that we care about. Mm -hmm. And it just takes a little bit longer to make any progress and things like that. But I think, you know, ideas uh, don't know their fields. They don't know where they should belong. And... Uh, we try to nurture that in the lab. Try to help them, help them along. Oh, that's true. They, they <laughs> pop in people's heads. And I think the bigger picture here is also just uh, the fact that as a lab, and even as a researcher or anybody who gets started, it's very valuable to nurture ideas. And then where they belong and where they fit in the social, economical, political, technological framework uh, can be figured out later. Mm -hmm. so you first need to think a little bit about broad range of ideas. So, like, what what uh, projects have you guys been working on lately? Uh, <laughs> I mean, what are you? What, yeah, what are you? There is uh, too many to list, but maybe I think uh, the broad range of thinking about the lab is. Uh, I think in broad, I split the lab into thinking about two themes. One we call frugal science, which is just the idea of really doing science with cost in mind to try to build uh, scientific tools that can become available to a much broader group of people. And then secondly, and frugal science uh, has connections to uh, even very basic ideas. So it's not just applied uh, and not only for a specific goal. The other part of the lab uh, is uh, much more of a physical biology lab Many of the questions there are really just driven by observations that we make uh, in living systems. We tend to think a lot of about organisms and how organisms function. So we try to think of a lens scale where we deal with things which, where we care about living organisms and try to figure out how they function. How do you how do you do that? Uh, how, do, you, how, do, how does one how does one figure out? 
Yeah, I think the way you do Zoolander, that. I was more interested in what bark was made out of. When I was like, yeah. What is bark made out? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that that's exactly how you start. Uh, you know, you you just ask this question. I think one of the ways to think about this is what you bring to the table is very much dependent on how you've been trained and how you think. So, um, you know, very broadly defined, uh, we're a very um, physics-oriented lab. So we do actually look at bark and then start mm -hmm. asking what is bark made out of? What does it do? What is the function? It's actually pretty fascinating. If you think about plants only take water from the roots, that might not be true because bark has infinite amount of surface area and all that water gets trapped in because of surface tension. And what if I told you that plants also drink from the leaves and it sort of goes in that direction where you have to ask questions about physiology and function of living things very much in the same way when you look at a piece of matter and you try to figure that out. That's where the engineering so, part comes into, you know, I mean, yeah, there's no, like, so, it's, I mean, it's, it's like more like physical, physical science, absolutely. I guess you call it, but looking at the, the way that it's, the way that it's built, I guess. Yeah. And I think also just, it, it's, it's non-trivial because we don't speak the same language in how living systems are built and designed. It's actually very important to take steps back and really think very broadly about what it might be doing. And uh, it's never the case that it's doing one thing. It's, it's also, that's why I mentioned uh, that we like to work on organisms because you have to ask in context of a tree, what does a bark do? Mm -hmm. Not just a bark in isolation. And it completely changes uh, how you would ask that question. Right. So do you, do you find yourself walking around and um, asking questions about organisms that turn out to be difficult for people who study them? Or do you, do you find yourself asking questions that are obvious to the people who study them, but that are poorly understood outside of some narrow scientific field? I think depending on the questions, they can go both ways. First of all, I think one of the ideas is, is asking broad-minded questions is, uh, is the harder challenge first? It's, or, or asking the relevant questions in biology is a harder challenge, because in the end, it's uh, you have to narrow it down to a very specific thing suddenly and you ask, what tools do I have available? So I'll only ask a question that I can answer right now, which sounds like a pretty reasonable thing to do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But sometimes in that same vein, we forget about an incredibly interesting sets of questions. Uh, so the way you would structure that would be there would be times that you would ask the same obvious question that people have been asking forever. And there are times uh, you ask questions that because you have a certain insight about physical sciences that mm -hmm. nobody else would ask that. I'll give you an example. It's uh, in the lab we're working on a cyanobacteria called Oscillatoria. It happens to be a chain of bacteria that form these really long filamentous chains, uh, 10 microns wide, but very long. The strange thing about them is you put them on a surface and they start crawling and they crawl, but they also twist in a helix. Hmm. Uh, you put one of them and it does some behavior, but then when you put thousands and thousands of them, they self-organize to form these incredibly intricate patterns where none of them individually know what they're doing. But in a collective way, it has an incredibly enormous uh, pattern formation. And then you have to also ask, you know, why are they forming these patterns to begin with? They're extremely light sensitive. And you tease it apart to asking, okay, let's ask the first basic question, how does it move? 
turns out we don't know the answer. We don't know very little about gliding motility uh, in any bacteria. Uh, you know, in cyanobacteria, when you think about it, that was some of the very first life forms that formed uh, you know, close to the barrier reefs. And some of the first structures, the oldest structures that have been formed have been thought to be cyanobacteria. And so the fact that they live in community and they form patterns starts to make sense. And so it's, I think, uh, questions are sometimes obvious, but you make the observations first and then ask the questions later. So, so, so to to the other side of what you were talking about, the the frugal technology stuff. Yes. Um, I know you've been working on a on a project called the, the Fold Scope, and I'm very excited because we're gonna get a we're gonna get a live audio demo <laughs> of the Fold Scope. Yes. Um, but it'd be cool. Can we can we talk about that? Tell us the give yeah. Us, give us the spiel. Um, Fold Scope. So I think this was maybe uh, four years ago uh, when I started the lab. Uh, the lab was uh, being constructed. Uh, I decided to spend some time in the field. Um, some of the work that we do in frugal science is focused on uh, tools and technologies in developing countries. So we were in Thailand. Um, and one of the things that, I mean, I grew up in India, so I had a sense of what it means to grow up without tools, you know, hardware or software or anywhere. And it sort of dawns on you in thinking a little bit about, you know, planet is a very broad place when you go around. Um, the tools for scientific curiosity are actually very limited in, in people who have it and people who don't. And ironically, even the people who have means to get these tools are not even aware that this is the way scientific curiosity in the process works to begin with. So I've stopped. Usually I don't mention this in a context of haves and have-nots developed or developing countries. I think that framework is broken. The way I've started thinking about this is truly about, you know, there are curious people in the world and they became curious because they had an experience. And especially I think a lot about life sciences. So microscopy happens to be a very powerful tool for life sciences. So at that time, four years ago, we started thinking a little bit about uh, how do we change this dynamics and build tools that can scale and get into the hands of, you know, millions and billions of people around the world. And what will come out of it will be at a time we figure that out when that happens. Mm -hmm. So uh, microscopy is something that we chose. We work on diagnostics in the lab. So, of course, there are applications to that. But uh, the challenge was, uh, you know, why use the word frugal science? Uh, cost is something that we put into the first equation. So we try to make these curves, which are cost performance curves, and you can ask yourself. And we chose ourselves a target, uh, and out of that came out Foldscope, which mm -hmm. is uh, effectively from our parts. Uh, the parts it's made out of, it costs $1 to make. It's a foldable origami microscope. It's a completely functional microscope that you fold together. It takes 5-10 minutes to put together and gives you... 700 nanometer resolution imaging uh, at a price point of a dollar. And wow. that allows you to see this wonderful world of life uh, that, you know, we all talk about why we wash hands. You know, mm -hmm. there's bacteria. Have you seen a bacteria? Then suddenly somebody looks at you. It's like, no. So it, the tool was really around this notion of uh, enabling people to become curious about the small scale world. Mm -hmm. And since we came up with it, we've been making and improving it uh, over the years uh, to a point where we now just shipped uh, a couple of months back 50,000 instruments around the world, wow. 130 countries, and people are exploring an incredible world. So it's partially about the tool, but also now partially about the community. Yeah, pure access. 
I mean, it's, it's not even, it's not even, it doesn't even have to be oriented toward diagnostics or something in order to find its, its value. Yeah. And I think, uh, so we work on the diagnostics front of this and it's very important to not hold the tool back because mm -hmm. with diagnostics, you know, it's a human's life is on the line. It's very important to, so we do a lot of academic work in that space. But on the other hand, as you just said, access, you know, we want to make microscopy a dinner conversation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If you're eating mint and you pull out your full scope and look at actually the gland cells that produce the mint oil droplets, mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. are, you know, 10, 20 micron droplets, that's your flavor of mint. Yeah, and right. it completely changes how you think about mint ever again. Understand yeah. the world differently. Yeah. Yeah. And think yeah. about it in the context of like the early days of the microscope, the, the immense advances that the the first handful of people who ever used microscopes were able yeah. to make scientifically. Shout out yeah. to Anton von Leeuwenhoek. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's kind exactly. of an ironic exactly. world when you think about every little object you will look at is a discovery, is something uh -huh. that science does not know. That's what the world he was in. And every single thing he wrote on a sketch, basically scratch of a napkin almost, these short blurbs, mm -hmm. every one of them was a major field, a major yeah. discovery. The thing that gets lost in that phrase is we think it's done. Mm -hmm. And ironically, what we're discovering is that is still alive. We have stopped doing this. Mm -hmm. As fields have matured, now we think about we're going to look at stuff that other people have looked at so we can understand it further. But the pure curiosity of kids and adults alike walking around picking up pond scum and finding mm -hmm. what they find, uh, I wish we still had more of it because we will still have every single time that happens, we find things that nobody knew about. Right. So ironically, if there are kids listening, you know, forget about what's written in your textbooks, just get out there, look at stuff, and you're bound to find new things. Yeah. Wikipedia is a miracle in terms of the amount of information that it's put in people's hands around the world, but it's it's in a way displaced a different approach to learning, right? Where yeah. You take for granted that you have all the information you need at your fingertips instead of needing to discover it. Yeah, and I think I I think a lot about this, and one of the ways that I phrase what you just said is, uh, you know, knowledge and experience are two different things. Mm -hmm. We're in a really knowledge-rich world. Um, especially when it comes down to even life sciences or the microscopic world. You can look up everything, find a Google image and suddenly find something. Mm -hmm. But to understand and experience it in the way uh, both the first people who discovered that knowledge and at that same time in the context is very crucial. You know, so we work a lot with kids and, uh, you know, try explaining to a five-year-old why they should wash their hands or there are germs under their nails and then suddenly transition that scenario and actually image live things growing on them. I don't know if you guys heard about that face mite story. You have arthropods and <laughs> things growing in your face right now, which we uh -huh. could take a scotch tape and pull yeah. out and show you things that wriggle and lay eggs and yeah, yeah. do other bad things on your face. No, we could do it. But it, it just is, I, I find it, it's fascinating, I think. Uh, so one of the perspective of bringing full scope to people has also been in how to grow a philosophy around curiosity-driven observations. You know, I'm bothered by too many emails and things that I read from high school students just trying to get into somebody else's lab to write a quick paper. And, you know, it just, there is so much pressure on kids to do what adult scientists do, but what they're missing is they're not hearing that actually adult scientists just goof around and look at stuff and suddenly <laughs> they find something. Uh -huh. And that's what they, you're supposed to do. 
Yeah, yeah. It's a huge problem. Just go through that loop of discovery, which for a kid is really is really fast, really tight feedback loop. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's do a, a fold scope audio unboxing. Audio, audio demo. Unboxing. All right. <laughs> so I have to say, I tell um, uh, one of the visions of what we're trying to do is that every single kid in the world should carry a microscope in their pocket. And that's the goal. You know, there are 2 billion kids, so we're going to make 2 billion fold scopes at some point of time. Slowly, maybe. One of the things about something like this is uh, maybe I'll show you guys uh, the actual kit that we ship to people around the world. This is what the kit comes in uh, and you open it. Manu's holding like a, um, it's like a, a, a cardboard envelope, like you'd get a FedEx, FedEx envelope. document. FedEx envelope, A4 size. Uh, it is officially a document. That's how we're allowed to ship around the world. It's you're actually using, You're using technical. A4 and not eight and a half by 11. <laughs> yes. Are there places where you wouldn't be able to ship a scientific instrument? Uh, that is correct. Uh, I won't mention them on radio, but uh, okay. it is true. <laughs> it's, uh, I think the challenge is just as, uh, you know, 130 countries is a lot of countries around the world. And we've had times where things get stuck in customs. And, mm -hmm. you know, just if it mentioned that, oh, here is a document that's coming, it goes mm -hmm. through. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, I ship a packet to South Sudan, it costs me $25 to ship yeah. and the instrument is a dollar. And it's very important that uh, somebody in South Sudan joins the community because it's not just that we are giving them a tool. He is bringing or he or she is bringing the biodiversity of that place that's absolutely incredible mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that even if all of us with all our means might want to explore, we can't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the international aspects of this project has been very important. So we translated all these instructions. There is a little instruction set that comes in. This one happens to be in English, uh, your standard IKEA style mm -hmm. uh, drawings. That's all you need. We have them in 12, 13 languages. Just last week, uh, we got our first fold scopes into Afghanistan, right. and the group is translating them in Pashto. Wow. Uh, and it's, it's fun to really get a sense of what people will explore. So here is the sheet that has uh, all the sets of parts. You fold it together, and in five, 10 minutes, uh, the key element of why Foldscope is made this way is, and I'm going to give this to you guys, so you guys get to make it yourself. Oh, nice. Uh, and once you fold it together, you will get something that looks like this. And here is an instrument that has uh, micro optics. Uh, there is a light source for illumination. There is another condenser lens right there. But so, there... Th so this is a so this is a, a piece of paper with some with some perforated bits punch out insert tabs and slots thing mm -hmm. um, and then you've also embedded a small circuit board with an led and and tell me about this little lens i, yeah. I hear this lens has some some special magic in it uh, that's correct you know <laughs> when you make optics you have to realize you got to make lenses uh, so in the lab we make many different kinds of lenses and that's one of the thrust is to build uh, complex micro lenses very precisely so there are many different types of lenses we make and in that plus paper if you go and you can look in to explore uh, the broad range of lenses that we describe. The kits that we ship has two magnifications, 150x and 450x. And if some of you who care about electronics, you immediately realize here is a lens embedded in the tape that's used for surface-mounted parts. Oh, yeah. So we actually built all the robotic machinery that allows us to do this assembly. So we've now turned any electronic assembly machines can now take optics. Wow. Right? And so, so are you tape re, reels. So you're re vacuum form. Are you vacuum forming? We these vacuum form them? these tapes, and then we actually have another robot that assembles the lenses is inside a, these tapes. Is it just a normal SMT? 
the, we get the vacuum form tapes with a given measure from a vendor, mm -hmm. and then uh, the robots actually assemble the lenses inside it. So what's important about here is the aperture is part of the lens. Mm -hmm. You know, lenses without apertures can be problematic, and this is one of the big things in that PLOS paper we describe is optimal apertures for being able to get the type of resolution. So it's like a pinhole camera. It's not a pinhole camera. So it does have a lens in it. A pinhole mm -hmm. would be just the aperture. Mm -hmm. So you won't get magnification out of that. But one of the things that it has is the lenses are there, but you still need a pinhole to cut the unrequired light. Okay. So this is a pinhole attached with your optics. Hmm. And one of the things that we'll do is now we will do a quick demo so you guys get to actually play with what it looks like uh, when you mount these. Um, one of the things uh, that I think a lot about is making a tool that when you're using the tool, you shouldn't be worried about the tool. You should be worried about the question you ask. And that's very important in scientific inquiry. You know, the things that we found, uh, you know, out in our field trips in, you know, Nigeria, India, even in U.S., many places, is people are so afraid of the scientific tool that uh, they're so careful. And uh, it's very important for these things to be robust. So this mm -hmm. is waterproof paper. You can dunk it in water. Um, one of the things that ends up happening is this one is a slightly newer design that we're now scaling up uh, for the phase two we'll be announcing soon. So now this has a feature called focus locking that allows us to actually lock the focus. And rather than having me talk, let me actually have you guys see because the value of yeah, this <laughs> the is visual world <laughs> is, you know, not just uh, hear, but see. And uh, so what I've done is taken a glass slide. This happens to be the silet that was uh, sucking on my cherry plant oh, cool. uh, right there. So you just grabbed this off your cherry plant yesterday? I just grabbed it off my cherry yeah. plant. And uh, I no am... No fancy preparation Nothing. Required. It's just stuck like that. So Manu's just handed me a slide with a small insect smushed between uh, the, the glass and a, and, a, and a second uh, much thinner piece of glass. The piece of tape. Yeah. And then one of the things we do is with kids, we try to avoid working with glass. So they actually operate with uh, these thin pieces of tape. And when you've graduated from that, then you make glass slides. Oh, Off you go. Nice. Uh, but one of the values of this is that it actually allows us to do wet samples, which is very crucial for live imaging of biology. So I've inserted it the way you use a fold scope. You use both hands always. You mount around. This is panning. So now I'm doing uh, wherever I want to go, and the focus is just that. So this is just two degrees of freedom. And I'm going to pass this around so you guys can actually see. So what you're seeing is because it's been mushed, a lot of lipid droplets from uh, the insects have actually came out. And I'm going to let you just play around with it. So hold it here and here, bring it close to your eye, and you should see something, and then just start moving around. And then if the image is not in focus, you move the wedge around. I, I'm seeing something immediately. So I'm holding this um, microscope in my hands and it's and it's flat, actually. It's like it's a it, it's kind of the, the thickness of a handful of uh, sheets of cardboard, you know, thin cardboard together. And you just peer through this tiny uh, hole in the lens, the aperture in the lens. And I'm I'm seeing cellular level features of this insect's wings. This is incredible. Yeah, that's the, uh, we usually say that we built in a detector 
uh, in our instrument that when a person is seeing and if they smile, <laughs> that's when we know it's working. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's a very important piece of hardware that we invented because it's yeah. very crucial. And oh, this wedge thing is clever. That's correct. So the wedge <laughs> allows you to just uh, focus lock, which was not a feature in that uh, older version. But one of the things that you have to ask is. Uh, it's very important, uh, you know, now we will, I'll give you a demo, you can record, you can share, you can take pictures, but it's very important for that instrument to be independent because the two billion kids that I care about, majority of them are not walking around with cell phones and cameras and maybe I don't want them to be also mm -hmm. in some mm -hmm. philosophical sense. So it's very crucial to have a tool that you would just immediately pull out take a look and not think twice about, oh, I should take it to the lab. Let me prepare the sample. Mm -hmm. And right now we're in a studio, but the most fun part of it is when we're outdoors. So you get yeah. to really actually ask questions back and forth, make an observation, go back, make an observation. So now we'll do a quick demo for uh, mounting this uh, on a camera. Uh, this has magnetic couplers embedded in it. Uh, I just took a piece of tape and stuck the other magnetic coupler to uh, another one. So of there's the a little phones. fitting that you've made that'll it'll clip onto like a iPhone camera lens or, or anything yeah. so it's this is independent it's mm. just a piece of tape with yeah. two mm -hmm. magnets so find any camera that you like align it right to the camera lens and what that does is gets you in so now I'm going to do that wow and at this time I'm going to play with the focus right there clean my lens. So it's really nice because not only can you look at it with your eye, it's really easy to get like a digital image of it. Exactly. Yeah, document it. So now you're in focus. You see that? Yeah. So you're seeing these branch-like structures that almost look like neurons. Uh -huh. So those are not neurons. Those are tracheal cells. This is the plumbing that actually makes insects breathe air because they don't have lungs. So the and it's incredible because individually these trachea are thinning down to several microns and they individually connect with cells as well. And those trachea are pretty interesting, you know, if you think about how to make stuff. It's a cell that coils around to form a cylinder, mm -hmm. which is very strange if you think about a cell. A cell is like a rope. But to form a tube for oxygen to diffuse, it'll wrap itself around. And now, you know, just making that observation, we can talk at infinite hours about Why how that? can a cell build a tube mm -hmm. where the inside the tube is air, the outside is the body fluid. How can you have a cell have a very precise tube, but then have it branch? You know, all the technical challenges we have in making stuff, many of these cells have already solved. Right, but, right. You know, to have that conversation, you have to have that experience. And then any insect that you pull out, you will pull out shreds of tracheal cells always. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's the it's an obvious entry point. Right. And then it becomes a, a, a way that you kind of understand the variation between the species and, and can begin to look for unusual things. And Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so that was a quick demo. And I think a couple other things about an instrument like this is when we shared this, uh, the point is to build a community that is a community of curious people who care about sharing and teaching others because science is very deep. I think this is a comment that many point times get missed out. Just knowing something is not good enough, science is very deep and that requires a consistent long-term engagement, especially, you know, if you're not already a scientist but you have a desire to be a scientist. It's not just going to a museum once is not going to cut it. You will mm -hmm. have an experience, but you know, just like to become a profound programmer, it's the time you spend 
if you want to become a pilot, it's the time you're going to spend. So in the science, it's how many times are you going to spend asking questions? So the, there are a couple, just like rules of fight club, there are a couple of rules <laughs> of full scope. You know, the manifesto is that, you know, when you give it to a kid, you never take it away. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's not a demonstration. Uh, it is for them to keep like a it's pencil. It's a personal tool. Yeah. It's a personal tool. If you give a pencil to a kid and take it away, that's a disaster. Um, and then the other thing is uh, the kit contains two. So you're supposed to give the second one to somebody you believe who will never, without your act, ever see through a microscope. Hmm. And what that allows you to do is to start thinking a little bit about that you are not just thinking about yourself. This is what is so wonderful about the Foldscope community to me is the fact that people are charging ahead, doing incredible number of things, sharing them, but with the vision that they want to share more with their community. Mm -hmm. And that is something that is a hiccup in all hardware tools and scientific education and is the fact that you know the tool is okay it's interesting it's fantastic but the community is the missing piece so one of the thesis for us has always been is how do you grow a like-minded community that's thinking about people around them not just themselves and not just an internet community that's correct. Uh, so a lot of uh, communities that we work with have no access to internet. That's why it's written instructions. Uh, we print out shared uh, posts. One thing you'll notice is there is absolutely zero experiments that are in this kit other than how to make it and a small letter that I wrote. There is nothing else. So we don't tell people what to do. And then a lot of people around the world um, will sketch and draw which mm -hmm. was the original way life sciences started. To be a good biologist, you had yeah. to be a good artist. Right, right. And we still live and, you know, cherish those paintings and drawings. And an incredible amount of stuff was seen at that time, which was actually very accurate. And the other part of that is when you do that, the observations go through your head. So you're, you're making observations. So we actually try right. to encourage that. And lots of posts online are just sketches. You're observing and conveying at once. Yeah, and now we'll go on to a, a segment that we like to do. It's, it's called Tools, which is exactly what it sounds like, where we, we discuss with our esteemed podcast guests what their, what their favorite tools of the trade are. You're, you're not allowed to say Foldscope because we've talked about that. <laughs> but like, you know, when, when, you're in your, when you're in your science lab performing science, what, are the, what, what things do you use? It can be, you know, some people say Microsoft Excel. <laughs> some people say... We don't have those know, people back on. Yeah. I, know. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. Um, Tools. I think maybe the way I'll phrase it is uh, I spend a lot of time in the field uh, taking uh, objects out and testing them out in the field. So we've done a lot of clinical work in Kenya and Ghana testing the tools that we make. But then I'm always uh, out in the field missing out all the tools that I have access to the lab. So my favorite tool I actually carry around. I just clipped it on. It's my Leatherman. <laughs> it's saved uh, many of our studies because uh, we have to hack stuff out in the field. And then the second tool, which is not really a tool, but is a repository of tool, is a hardware store. Uh, huh. When you're out in Cameroon looking for that one heat sink and you find a hardware store with a nail that is the perfect right size, that moment is priceless. Yeah. <laughs> so I think I, you know, I am very frugal in how I think I'm always playing with objects. You know, there are many ideas that are implemented in a fold scope, which really came initially from just uh, fooling around. So the very first lenses uh, were actually 
uh, borrowed from a, a place where they were used for abrasion and uh, sort of a completely different thing. So mm -hmm. like glass beads, glass beads in many different locations. Uh, I really do enjoy finding things in old stores. Uh, yeah. So that's that's my favorite. Going uh, to the hardware store and just wandering around and, and going to an unclassified hardware store, not these, uh, you know, the you know, Home Depot style where everything is organized and yeah, right, right. You know, the one where the owner doesn't know what he has. Yeah, right. Let's but a place see. with like raw materials. I think raw material is really the most important thing, personally, for me. Yeah. Both of those tools are really about engaging with things at a fundamental physical level. Yeah, 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 and I think it's also. What it reminds me of is how little you need when you're trying to do something if you're open to the rest of the world providing mm -hmm. you the tool. I think the ironic thing that I think about is sometimes people think good science is associated with all that you have. Ironically, that's not true. You know, good science is associated with good questions and the desire to really answer those questions. And when you make the world your tool, then you don't feel too bad that I don't have the fanciest machine shop and uh, all the good stuff. <laughs> Science sometimes has become where there is a giant list of things that are requested before you would start your first experiment, and that's a disaster. Because mm -hmm. then there's no real discovery allowed. Yeah, and also it's uh, you constrain yourself from what you have, the tools that you have. You ask questions based on the, the one tool that you have, and then it's not driven by a question. I think one of the beautiful things about life sciences, very related to what you guys do here, is most of these original biologists were not just beautiful artists and painters. They were hackers. They truly... Uh, one of the most famous papers that I like in embryology is a paper where uh, this famous biologist took a baby's eyelash because it has the perfect stiffness so you could tie a knot around it to actually show that when a cell can have an asymmetric structure, the cell division planes will change. So he took a single cell and wrapped a baby's eyelash and tied a knot to generate it as a dumbbell. Uh -huh. Now, uh -huh. for him to have thought about this, you know, this is a 10 micron, 20 micron cell to find the perfect material. Yeah, for tying. And around. it really has to be a baby's eyelash because our eyelashes are too stiff. Yeah. They're mm -hmm. not so soft. So he is known to be walking around his lab asking uh, mothers. You know, it's. I think we need to bring that back in Well, science. yeah, because it's not like you, you don't think about like, okay, I need to do this experiment. I would like to order five of, of this thing. You think, okay, I need some little tiny string that's about this diameter to tie around this thing. What is like that? Oh, I was reading about baby eyelashes the other day. I think, <laughs> I think that'll work great. Let me go find one of those. Um, cool. So now we, we go on to our, our favorite part of the day, which is the click spiral part of the day. Uh, which is where we go around the table and we talk about something that we've been very interested in recently that may or may not have anything to do with work. Um, so, uh, John, what have you been excited about lately? Well, uh, this past weekend, my parents were in town here in San Francisco and um, we went on a handful of hikes. Um, two of them were around the ruins of uh, a kind of turn of the century entertainments. Um, one was uh, Sutra Baths, which is a landmark here in San Francisco. Um, uh, there are these enormous pleasure baths that were built at the far northwestern corner of the city in the late 19th century as, um, you know, and, and, and connected by the city across what were then the sand dunes in the, in the Richmond all the way to downtown by railroad. 
and uh, they were a popular entertainment until they declined in popularity right after World War II and eventually uh, closed and then burned down perhaps for the insurance money. And now it's just a, a handful of foundations uh, right against the water with uh, you know big pools uh, that, that, that remain from the way that this thing worked, which is incredible. Waves would crash into a, a receiving pool and then uh, there was like a canal that would take the seawater through a series of settling tanks over some some heating apparatuses that used coal to heat this immense amount of water and then it would flow into these um so it was pools. actually like the water was refreshing itself because because it was the intake was so like the the, the sea would splash into it and get yeah. fresh water and then it would go and be into the that's pretty cool yeah exactly it wasn't quite like waves were crashing across the edge of the um of the pool and and refreshing the pool. It, it has was like, more it like, has like an inlet somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's and then an they inlet. pump it out at the other end or something. Right. They let it out somehow at the other end. But it's like heated and it's indoors and it was it was really gorgeous. It's like a good dif differential equations problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's got to be like, you know, they probably had a, a reservoir so that maybe it only filled during high tide or filled more during high tide than low tide. The other one was uh, 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 that we took a hike in Mill Valley, in, near Mill Valley in, in Marin County on the uh, sides of Mount Tam, which is the highest mountain in Marin County. It's about 3,000 feet, and you see it from all over the city. And uh, I learned that there, a railroad used to go all the way to the very top of Mount Tam, which is an extraordinarily steep mountain, and the, and the road that goes up today to the top of the mountain is very steep and windy. You, you can't imagine how a train ever could have made it. Uh, but this railroad was called the Mount Tamalpais and Mere Woods Railway, and uh, it was a conventional steam railroad going up, the tourists would take on excursion and then going back down it was a gravity car it was like a like an an early 20th century thrill ride they disconnect the steam engine and there's and a brake man go. in the front and they just let you go and you just like whiz through the redwood forests and and down to the bottom and um remarkably people just kind of lost interest in this in the 20s and it closed and it was removed and today there's a hiking trail called old railroad line uh trail and you can you can walk up the path but both of them kind of um, strange artifacts from really not so long ago, from you know less than a hundred years in both cases, and they represent a completely different you know way of entertaining yourself from modern ways of entertaining yourself. And um, both of them arguably failed because uh, people got richer and found more interesting things to do with themselves than to like take a day long excursion to uh, a giant hot pool on the spring the shore of the ocean or then riding a train up and down a mountain like by the 50s you know you could you could take you a, could stay an home airplane and watch to florida TV. or stay home and watch tv or whatever right so it's kind of um <laughs> you know just evolving tastes but it's a weird it was a weird snapshot to come across two of these artifacts uh within a few days of each other so david how about your what's your click uh, i got one night last week i got really into reading about charcoal charcoal is a very interesting material it turns out Okay. So, uh, how is charcoal made? Uh, well, let me tell you. So, <laughs> um, basically, um, wood wood burns in two stages. I'm kind of I'm kind of paraphrasing from a Reddit thread about this as well okay. as the Wikipedia article. But you know, wood burns in two stages. There's the the hydrogen stage and the carbon stage. Um, and so, like the hydrogen stage is is the breaking down and oxidization of of the hydrogen molecules in the wood. So that's like when you start a fire and you see flames. But then after all that stuff is gone and it actually turns into charcoal, you'll notice it gets a whole lot hotter. And that's because it's it's then transitioned into the carbon stage of of burning, which is the oxidization of the of the carbon in the thing. Hmm. So 
charcoal making is a thing that's been around for a long time. You can kind of burn wood in a in a sealed environment um, to make it, and it burns really, really hot. I had I had no idea how hot charcoal can get. Apparently, it can get up to like twenty seven hundred degrees C, which is why oh it's, the, it's still the it's still the the preferred way of heating things, even for like doing blacksmithing and, mm -hmm, and things mm -hmm. like this today. Yeah. So like so charcoal. It, um, you know, it's 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 very useful. It's very it's one of the key one of the three main ingredients in in gunpowder. Hmm. Um, it's used with blacksmithery. It's used for barbecuing things. Um, there's there's different types of charcoals. The Japanese take take charcoal very seriously. Um, they make white charcoal and black charcoal, and it produces very little or almost no smoke when it's burned and used for a lot of um, cooking stuff. I also learned that the the Kingsford Charcoal Company. Um, you know the uh, you know like just like normal Kingsford charcoal that you buy for your barbecuing or something. Mm -hmm. It actually started as a as an offshoot from the Ford Motor Company because hmm. Henry Ford wanted to figure out something clever to do with all the extra wood chippings and leftover bits of wood from automobile manufacturing. And so huh. they developed this process for for grinding up for grinding up um, wood and compressing it into briquettes and making charcoal briquettes. Interesting. So we can thank the automobile manufacturing industry yeah. for our for our Kingsford charcoal. I am um, I I burn a lot of duraflame logs at my house here in in san francisco and had always assumed that that was it's some like sort extra of like, wood pulp or something yeah waste byproduct wood you know sawdust and, and wax pressed into a log shape yeah it's really gross when you when you touch it that duraflame yeah, stuff. yeah. It smells like, terrible too yeah. I, I hate it when my neighbors burn it i should i should rethink my burning of it i guess but <laughs> Uh, yeah. So anyway, I've been reading about Manu. What do you What do you have? We asked We asked Manu about uh, what What he was thinking about before the show, and said it didn't necessarily have to be work related. And he was like, "Well, everything's work related, right?" So I'm very <laughs> interested in knowing. Um, yeah, without knowing, uh, you guys do these spirals. I think I can just tell you about my discovery from yesterday. Yeah. All right. Perfect. Uh, I have a backyard with a fantastic group of uh, plants that I don't tend to, whatever uh -huh. grows in there. I live close to the Glen Canyon, so this is right going into the canyon. And I saw a leaf which has tiny little bumps in it. And, you know, this is kind of a malformed leaf. You think a little bit about it. It's like, aha, what's going on? And I plucked it out, uh, and I noticed there is something embedded in the bottom of the leaf. And the leaf, this is an insect. And the leaf makes a response that it forms a three-dimensional structure around it such hmm. that it perfectly fits the pocket. So the insect, uh, so it turns out I figured out what it was. I was imaging around with it. Uh, but at that same time, it happens to be what are called silids. Silids are plant-sucking insects. Mm -hmm. And it turns out uh, that a version of this is actually... Uh, this one happens to be not a native here. It came in from uh, Australia, probably. Yeah. Uh, there are a lot of horrifying silids in Australia. That is probably right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It does have... Uh, uh, one of the challenging things with this is, uh, fast forward, one of the species is known to carry a bacteria that literally devastates all the citrus fruits. Hmm. So, you know, you hear about all these things, oh, oranges are going away and uh, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. these uh, catastrophic things that are happening because of uh, non-native species. But then you turn in your own backyard and you find the exact same thing. Uh, and I think it hasn't been reported above Napa, I think probably the mm. northest. So we are pretty high up in its uh, 
uh, latitude of where it's reported. So, so what's the purpose of the little structure that it builds around the bug? The, to... the structure helps the bug for sure. And hmm. I don't think the biology of this is uh, known so well, but this is a plant stress response. Mm-hmm. So when uh, psyllids and aphids and many other insects have a way to, have, they have a proboscis that's so small that they can suck right between cell junctions. Really? So we're talking about, you know, something feeding at a cellular scale. Mm-hmm. And the plant produces a response. And one of the theories is, of course, it is, isn't known. This is also true for galls. These are called plant tumors. You can go in and see plant outgrowth. Uh, and one of the fascinating things is, is somehow to make a flat leaf is actually a very hard thing to do because growth has to be perfectly symmetrical for something to be flat. Mm-hmm. If you take two sheets and if both of them are growing in different rates, you would actually get a curl leaf. So the fact that many leaves are curled is, uh, that's the easier uh, thing to do from a point of view of physics. So what ends up happening is when you have a gall on the other side, somehow there is differential growth that forms the pocket, but the pocket protects the insect so well that it's perfectly flushed in there. Mm. Huh. Uh, so uh, other than it visually looks pretty disgusting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, it's remarkable. Uh, talk about living matter. Yeah. I have a I have a um, a lemon tree that I tend intermittently, yeah. and it reacts this way. Its leaves react this way to certain insects that yeah. build, you know, cocoons. Yeah. On. So the beautiful thing about this is this is a one to one map. So there is hmm. a coevolution of this specific species to the specific plant. So the one that I was looking at happens to be a cherry plant from Australia as well. Mm-hmm. So somehow the insect probably came with the plant. And huh. the one you're going to find in your citrus is probably going to be very different species. Yeah, but at yeah, the yeah. same time, they only like uh, leaves from that specific plant. So it's huh. a very, yeah, co-evolution is pretty strange. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The ones in my lemon plant resemble moths. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and bef- I mean, figuring out what they are and treating them is so far down the list of things that are needed in order to make my lemon plant flourish. <laughs> I haven't gotten around to it because I, uh, I don't quite understand even what the plant life cycle is yeah. well enough to take the advice of like the gardening forums and so on that say like, wait until after the, the first stage of branch growth has finished and the plebonum is displaying before trimming above the second knot of each branch. Exactly. I'm reading this and I have no idea what it is. Yeah. <laughs> Good. So that segment was a click spiral. And if you, the listener, have a click spiral that's been eating away at you and that you'd like to, um, to inflict upon David and me and the other listeners of this podcast, just email us at hardware at O'Reilly.com. And we'll build a cocoon around it. We'll build a cocoon around it and protect everyone else from it until we uh, talk about it on the radio. Talk about it on the radio, and then <laughs> and then, who knows? Thousands, millions will will be exposed to it, and next thing you know, people will be reading about uh, you know 18th century archaeology or whatever, and um, and they'll be better for it. It'll be great. We have all the best 18th century archaeology. Everyone agrees. Exactly. <laughs> I'll be talking about that on the next Click Spiral, actually. I have a few things related to archaeology that'll be really good. That's pretty cool. Stay tuned. Right. Dude, Manu, thank you so much for coming out today. This has been really great. All right. Thanks so um, much. It's been awesome. How can people find you on the internet and yes. other things that you're interested so, in? Uh, uh, we have a lab website. Uh, if you just uh, Google my name or Prakash Lab Stanford, 
But then if you're interested in Foldscope, you should just go to foldscope.com. Soon enough, we will be making the phase two announcement, which will be the release of a million instruments. So you should watch out for that. And uh, uh, if you have a Foldscope, please, please, please share and post uh, on the community website. We always love to see what people do with it. And, and if now, you, and if you want a Foldscope, and if you want a Foldscope, you go to that website, foldscope.com, say a sentence or two about the community. That So to get it right now, you have to commit to working with the community so you guys are not getting out for free. <laughs> Here's a tool. One, you have to give to somebody who would never watch through a microscope. And the second thing is share and join and actually contribute to the community. Because, you know, there might be a kid in Kansas or a kid in Namibia watching your post right now and he'll be able to replicate your experiment mm -hmm. because the hardware is exactly the same which is very important so when i do an experiment anybody in the full scope community has the capacity to replicate it which i think is a very valuable asset. the instrument is standardized so you can exactly you can say instructions on how to exactly exact yeah yeah because most of the time uh, science protocols if you have things that you don't own, then you can't follow through. Well, uh, thank you very much. Um, as always, listeners, if you have any questions, click spiral suggestions, guest suggestions, or just want to say hi, you can email John and I at hardware at O'Reilly.com. And we'll, uh, we'll see you next time. All right. Bye-bye. For links and other information related to this week's episode, visit O'Reilly.com slash hardware. And send your questions and comments to hardware at O'Reilly.com. If you enjoyed the program, Make sure you've subscribed on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting platform. And if you really enjoyed it, consider leaving us a review. Until next time, I'm David Crane. And I'm John Bruner. <laughs>